1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of InvestorIdeas.com Podcast. In today's podcast, I'll be going over a few public company announcements, as well as recent news regarding the edibles market in Canada and the issues being raised from the industry, cannabis hangovers, as well as raw papers. Uh, so I'll be looking at Canopy Growth Corporation trading on the TSX as weed and the NASDAQ as CGC, as well as the Good Shroom co Incorporated trading on the TSX Venture as mush. So Canopy Growth Corporation announced its financial results for the third quarter ended December 31st um, last week. Also announced significant changes to the company's Canadian cannabis business. Um, So Canopy Growth announced that's transitioning to an asset light model, uh, which will be exiting cannabis flower cultivation in the company's Smith Falls, Ontario facility, ceasing the sourcing of cannabis flower from the Mirabel Quebec facility and moving to a third-party sourcing model for cannabis beverages, edibles, and vapes. Um, and overall, there's going to be reducing the company's headcount by approximately sixty percent, including 800 positions impacted uh, last week, forty percent which were impacted immediately. Canopy must be profitable to achieve our ambition of long term North American cannabis market leadership. We are transforming our Canadian business to an asset light model and significantly reducing the overall size of our organization. These changes are difficult but necessary to drive our business to profitability and growth, said David Klein, Chief Executive Officer. Um, So obviously there's been a lot of, I would say, mixed press about this. If you've been paying attention over the last week or so, um, you've seen lots of comments from Canopy Growth employees who have had their positions terminated. You've seen lots of sort of industry commentary of this is something we've heard in the past from a lot of these large-scale LPs in Canada is basically... um, what I've repeated many times in the past and what many interviews have said and a lot of people have talked about in the industry, which is that these companies bit off more than they could chew when they built these large-scale production facilities. They were overstaffed. Um, they didn't really think about the long-term sustainability of the business. They didn't really think about how this would affect profitability, how this would affect overall um, just production cost of their product. And in general, they didn't really view the market very well as far as what was going to be succeeding in the long term. Again, I've talked about how there's a lot of companies who have went to this asset light model much earlier um, and focused on really just having synergistic relationships with smaller companies. So working with small grows, working with small extract producers, working with a, a large group of brands as opposed to having this sort of large scale in-house production. Um, and I do think that what we're seeing is the slow collapse of that market. Um, it's been happening for a long while. And I do think that, again, at the end of the day, you're just going to see these companies basically form into a distribution model where really companies like Canopy, Aurora, um, the big MSOs in the U.S. are just going to be handling the actual distribution. They're going to be handling some of the um, legal and financial restrictions or alleviating some of those legal and financial restrictions for some of these smaller companies who can't afford to get licensing or um, can't afford to get some of the sort of perks that you'll need to get into different markets. But uh, definitely is a big negative for the industry overall. And I do think that this is something you'll probably continue to see um, from these larger scale LPs, at least in Canada, for the next while. And again, I think that in general, this model won't hopefully be replicated again. I think that most people, when you're looking at new markets starting up, are going to be looking at more asset-like models and are going to be looking at working with small-scale producers and simply handling distribution and uh, sort of packaging overall. Looking next, the Good Shroom Company, who announced that it's breaking into a new category with THC-infused beef jerky named OG Jerk. Now, launched in Quebec in cannabis stores last week, and the company received its first purchase order of its product for $23,000. And it's expected to receive replenishment orders every one to two weeks. Now, OG Jerk contains 60 grams of beet jerky, which is two 30 gram vacuum sealed sachets uh, infused with a total of nine milligrams of THC. The company's CEO, Mr. Eric Ront, stated in Quebec, the government limits the choice of edibles to product which the judge would not appeal to children, such as cookies and candies which has drastically limited the choices. Now, this limitation also presents an opportunity as there are now well-performing edibles at present by our standards. As the only beef jerky in Quebec, we expect that such a commonly consumed savory snack now infused with THC will appeal to many consumers. Concurrent with Super Bowl weekend, we also feel it's an appropriate launch week. Um, so obviously they launched that earlier last week. Uh, the reason I bring this up is kind of twofold. A it sort of highlights some of the difficulties going on in the Quebec market. If you're familiar with the Canadian cannabis market, you know the Quebec. It's probably been one of the shittiest markets um, through the entirety of cannabis legalization in Canada. A lot of the restrictions they've placed on businesses, a lot of the restrictions they've placed on the product options that can be available have really screwed the market over. Um, and in general, most customers and, and sort of cannabis consumers within Quebec have complained about this you know, almost nonstop, as well as a lot of the businesses entering into that space. But there are rooms for opportunity, which obviously the Good Shroom Co. and TNN Biomedical um, are working together to try to get around. I do think also on the other side, just interesting to see what new products are coming out when it comes to edibles. Um, I don't necessarily know if jerky is kind of the, the, the model that people would be looking for as far as product categories, but it's interesting to see how people are trying to move away from their traditional sort of candy and gummy model that's been used in the past. I do think in general that when you're looking at the longevity of sort of where is edibles going to end up eventually, um, moving away from sort of candies is a smart play because I do think that in general, uh, Most adults who are using cannabis consumption are trying to move away from sugar. They're trying to move away from processed foods. They're trying to live a healthier lifestyle. And I'm just saying that's a general trend. That's obviously not the case for everyone. I still think you will have, obviously, a business for chocolates, for cannabis gummies, for cannabis candies. Um, But I do think as well, when you're looking at sort of the problems that this industry is always going to face when it comes to Uh, protecting the youth as you know the argument always seems to explode from is this is unsafe for the children the children will eat this it's candy it'll it'll draw them into it kids are going to smoke weed because they like smoking weed it has nothing to do with the format that it's in Um, obviously the format does make it more palatable but i don't think that that's the reason that you have kids attracted to smoking weed kids have always been attracted to smoking weed since you know very early times um going back into the 60s and 50s. So I really don't believe that there needs to be any marketing or branding that's going to attract them. I think that it's just going to happen regardless of anything. But um, I do think that you're going to start to see more and more companies, at least in Canada for now, try to find different edibles options um, that do lean more to an adult market and do lean away from sort of the traditional candy model. Um, again, there's been lots of issues with the States as well, where there's been a lot of brands that have kind of illegally used, uh, <clears throat> some of the branding rights to different actual candy companies. You've seen lots of nerds come onto the market, M&Ms, etc. So I, I think in general, um, like I said, you're going to start to see more of these. Quebec could be an interesting market to watch because of the restrictions already in place there. Um, but hopefully you'll start to see, a higher quality of of edibles come onto the market and different options start to become uh, available. I do think in general you're probably going to end with some sort of beverages. I think that the sort of infused beer market is where you can probably see the most potential, but that still has a lot of issues surrounding it in Canada and in the U.S. So interesting to pay attention to. Uh, So going to recent news now, uh, looking at Amsterdam, smoking marijuana on the streets of Amsterdam's red light district will soon be illegal. And this ban comes as part of a string of new legislation that aims to make life in the city more bearable for permanent residents who have long complained about the rowdiness of tourists in the area. Uh, so Amsterdam City Council announced the cannabis ban last week, and the city statement said that Amsterdam's busiest neighborhoods, including De Wellen, also known as the Red Lights District, have become unlivable. Residents of the old town suffer a lot from mass tourism and alcohol and drug abuse on the streets, wrote the Municipality of Amsterdam. Especially at night, the atmosphere can get grim. People who are under the influence linger for a long time. Residents can't sleep well, and the neighborhoods become unsafe and unlivable. Uh, In addition to the soon-to-be smoking ban, the city is also discouraging the sale of alcohol, as well as will be banning drinking in public. Um, And it'll also be closing bars, as well as the actual sex work establishments earlier, so closing at 2 a.m. rather than 3 (coughs) a.m., And closing at 3 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. for the sex work establishments. So Amsterdam becoming a little less crazy. Um, And I do find it interesting that this is something that they would do now when there are so many more countries in Europe as well as uh, obviously North America that have semi-legal or at least medical access to cannabis now. I wouldn't have expected that this would be a big problem um, for them at the moment. That being said, this is something we've seen a lot in the past. Um, A good example is looking at what happened with sort of mushroom legality in Japan. Um, This was a big problem for them as being, you know, Japanese culture had no real issues with mushrooms. They were just sold at like street kiosks in the past. And then basically in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s and moving forward, So many tourists started coming to Japan specifically to consume mushrooms because they were just cheap and available and you could buy them from a street kiosk. And because of that, obviously, these tourists weren't as cool about it as the Japanese population, created a bunch of bad headlines, and then it became illegal. And basically, there's kind of a weird legality uh, loophole with this in Japan, where essentially, if you are a citizen of Japan, it's easily for you to access mushrooms, Um, but if you're coming to Japan as a tourist or even a work permit, it's basically highly illegal. And I do think that this is something that is going to start to be looked at more and more. Um, I don't really buy into that smoking marijuana on the streets becomes sort of this big problem thing. I don't see people getting rowdy from smoking a bunch of weed. I do believe that it's probably the drinking That probably leads to bigger issues. Um, Obviously, there's going to be people who, you know, for instance, in Amsterdam, they have a lot of the cafes where they have the edibles. There is a little bit of iffiness with edibles and that people don't necessarily know how to dose themselves very well. So you can get people kind of greening out. That being said, that doesn't usually lead to rowdiness or more aggressive behavior. It usually leads to falling asleep in places. Um, I could see people passing out in the streets. I could see the lingering aspect of people staying out later from smoking weed. I don't really see it being uh, like a loud, aggressive, or rowdy behavior, though. Um, I don't think that really fits with cannabis culture or what cannabis does to you. But um, it is something that I think may become a trend that you start to notice, which is as um, this this happened in Thailand, obviously there was a lot of issues when they decriminalized weed. They had to put out a lot of different announcements and many of the countries surrounding them had to kind of go hard to the press um, discussing that you know this still means you can't transport weed into other countries nearby. You're not bringing weed into these other countries because it's not accessible there. They don't want tourists coming there specifically to smoke weed, et cetera, et cetera. And this is kind of the weird problem uh, I think obviously there's some places like California and Colorado who have really embraced sort of the weed tourism aspect and have benefited from it. But I do think that it's something that as new markets open up, it'll be sort of a, a discussion that continues ongoing and I do think it's kind of uh I don't know, overall a little bit of a sad moment for the entire weed culture. Um, aspect in that Amsterdam and the Red Light District have always kind of been known as this international spot to go smoke weed. Um, And now, obviously, that's being changed. So I do think that that's kind of an overall negative to cannabis culture and the cannabis industry. But it's something to consider is how cannabis legalization affects tourism Um, and looking at different markets. It'd be interesting to see, you know, which areas have actually benefited dramatically from cannabis tourism. And which ones have seen an overall net negative impact, you know, whether that's, again, the locals are being annoyed or harassed, etc. Or if they've seen other businesses suffer because of it. So something to pay attention to. In other recent news um, from the Toronto Star, they discussed how companies like Aurora Cannabis, they were one of the public companies listed in this, and other cannabis producers appear to be finding creative ways around dose limits for legal THC gummies, and Health Canada is not super psyched on that. So some of the products which hit legal pot stores and the Ontario cannabis stores uh, have been labeled as glitches. This comes as a natural result, says industry officials, as competition from the gray market where vastly stronger edibles are readily available. So, for instance, the Drift brand glitches produced by Aurora each contain 10 milligrams of THC per unit, the maximum for edibles and extract products. But they come in packages of 5 or 10, meaning that they either have a 50 or 100 milligram THC per package. Edibles can have a maximum of 10 milligrams per package, while extract products can contain up to 100, or sorry, 1,000 milligrams of THC per package. Health Canada has identified edible cannabis products erroneously being classified and marketed as cannabis extract products," said spokesperson Tammy Gerbeau. "These non-compliant products do not meet the controls in the Cannabis Act and Cannabis Regulations, which serve to mitigate against public health and public safety risks associated with edible cannabis." Uh, Health Canada is in the process of working with implicated license holders to return them into companies with the Act and its regulations, said Jarbo. Now, Aurora spokesperson Michelle Leffer said that the company was following the rules when it developed and launched glitches. We take compliance seriously and developed our Aurora drift glitches in accordance with the regulations and fulfilled all requirements by Health Canada prior to the market launch, said Leffer in an email. We respect Health Canada's oversight and continue to have regular open dialogue about moving forward. Now, producers wouldn't have to do an end run around rules if THC limits were so low, argued former cannabis, sorry, Ontario Cannabis Minister uh, George Smitherman, the head of the Industry Association for the Legal Cannabis Producers. The low amount of THC allowed in legal edibles is pushing consumers into the gray market. That limit means we can cede that category to the illicit market, said Smitherman, President and CEO of the Cannabis Council of Canada. And this is something um, I've talked about a lot in the past is that Uh, realistically, the gray market is always going to be able to outcompete if you have these types of THC restrictions. And at the end of the day, we do have to look at just a comparable market. Again, you can go into an alcohol store and buy as much as you want, realistically, um, other than when there was COVID restrictions. And, you know, Australia obviously suffered that probably the most dramatically. Um, Quebec also kind of had some weird restrictions with regarding to that. But in general, uh, you can go into any liquor store buy as much alcohol as you want. You can buy the highest percentage of alcohol. There's no guidelines about that. But for some reason with cannabis, we assume that THC is so much deadlier to the mind, even though there's basically no medical data, there's no clinical data, and there's no even just anecdotal data that supports that. Um, So this is the double standard that I've talked about a million times over. Obviously cannabis will always be treated as this sort of scary drug And because of that, there's going to be all these limitations. These limitations directly fuel the gray market. That's been proven time and time again. This has been the issue in California where you've had uh, high licensing fees, um, a lot of legal loopholes to get your business operational, and now there's more illegal stores than there are legal ones. And a lot of those illegal ones would like to go legal, but the difference is is they have to have access to a huge amount of capital, they have to have access to fintech programs if they want to be able to process debit and credit, etc. They need all sorts of different solutions for banking, Um, and realistically, at the end of the day, there's so many hurdles, and the penalty for running an illicit store is so minimal that they just continue to do what they're doing. And realistically, this could be solved by just allowing for an easier barrier for entry. By basically treating cannabis like you would a vegetable. By treating it in that same regard as you need to have a license for your business. You need to pay regular business taxes. You need to make sure that your products are clean, that they are coming from a a, a safe source, and that they're tested regularly. I think that's all that should really be required with cannabis is regular testing to make sure that your product doesn't contain molds or fungus. That it doesn't contain heavy metals. That it is what it is saying on the package. So if you say this has 30% THC, it better be testing around 30%. And I don't see any problems with that. And I think almost everyone in the illicit industry would comply with that quite easily. Because when you look at the product quality, when you're comparing illicit products that I could buy in Canada right now, to the products that I could buy in the legal stores, there's virtually no difference other than actually a lot of the times the product from the illicit market is better, it's higher quality, it's higher grade, it's fresher. And the product that's coming from the recreational market in Canada is usually staler, uh, smaller buds, drier nugs. And product that doesn't really meet these quality standards over time because of all these weird regulations that are based off of people who come from the food and drug industry. or sorry, the food industry. Um, so this is kind of always going to be the issue is regulators need to actually have an understanding of how the illicit market works. I would love it. If we could ever get, um, you know, someone who's dealing with cannabis regulations to actually have an understanding of how the illicit market works, um, to be aware of the products that the regular market is going to be competing with and actually make regulations that address that properly. I think it's still an idiotic problem that we have this sort of massive illegal market competing with a recreational market at the same time and that really both markets aren't benefiting from this. Um, You could say somewhat that the gray market is, but I would say I've talked to many people who work in the gray market and a lot of them have complaints because basically they're pricing themselves out of existence because that's kind of one of the few areas that they can really compete with legal cannabis companies is on pricing. But because of that, they're starting to have to produce and sell for such a low price um, that their profitability is starting to go down. Obviously, in California, it's still a little different, but when you're looking at Canada, this like I said, really neither side is winning; they're just both screwing each other. And there are ways around this. If we change these THC limits, that would be one of the easiest ways to adjust this. Um, and realistically, you do just need to look at what what is your your worst case scenario. Someone takes a two thousand milligram edible. I have had those in the past; um, they're fantastic. Every time that I went to the states for any conferences, I always tried the strongest edibles or strongest beverages available. I always wanted to see what it what what can happen realistically to me um, I don't see really any risks with cannabis personally i don't I don't have any of the oh my God, I'm gonna lose my mind thoughts. Um, I quite like getting real high and I've never really seen a downside other than I fall asleep and most people. When you look at sort of just the overall cannabis users, um, that's kind of all that's ever really reported. There are people who freak out and go to hospitals. Those people, though, it's not like they get administered anything at the hospital. They just are told to calm down. They feel safer in a hospital setting. But there is no thing that you can be given to detox the cannabis out of your bloodstream quickly and efficiently. So realistically, there kind of just is no real... Downside to this, there's never been a reported overdose of cannabis, um, so I don't quite understand what it's going to take for regulators to understand this and treat it the same as alcohol. Again, buyer beware. You know, know your limit, play within it. I understand having warnings on the labels. I understand having dosage be clear and concise to be you know, obviously what it should be, but I don't understand having these strange limits that are based off of basically nothing. These also don't take into account the fact that um, cannabis, obviously there's a huge range of tolerances. And a lot of this is based off your weight, your metabolism. So to just say that everyone should be satisfied with a 10 milligram edible, well, if you're a huge 200 pound plus guy, it's just not going to do it for you, especially if you've been smoking for years. So a lot of these things just don't really make sense they continue to hamper the market i do find it funny that companies are finding ways around this so i'm actually quite pleased that aurora did what it did and kudos to any of the other companies that found this sort of loopholes within this system and i do think that that's a good thing because it's forcing people to actually look at how stupid this system is why can you sell an extract that contains a thousand milligrams but you can't sell a gummy that contains a thousand milligrams what is the the logical justification for that? Oh, well, one's in a liquid uh, droplet form and the other one's in a candy. Well, God forbid that the candy has the correct dosage. So it, it doesn't really make sense when you do actually hear these people talk about it out loud. It sounds as obviously stupid as it is. And I do think that companies need to continue to push these boundaries. Um, you know, I'm sure Aurora suffered a little bit from this, but I think overall it probably put their brand... Um, a little bit higher in people's minds because they realize that they are doing things to try to stay competitive. They are trying to actually service the industry and the customers that want higher-graded and higher THC products. They're just being hampered by Health Canada. And again, Health Canada seems to have a very delusional understanding of the cannabis industry, of the illicit industry, and of THC itself. Uh, In other recent news, uh, speaking of how cannabis is so dangerous... A new scientific review is challenging the idea that there's a marijuana hangover effect the day after use, raising questions about policies that punish drivers and people in safety-sensitive positions for cannabis consumption that occurs weeks prior to drug testing being administered. So researchers at the University of Sydney reviewed 20 studies that look at the effects of marijuana aid after hour use, focusing on performance assessments, and their findings are said to be published in the Journal of Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. Most studies didn't detect next-day effects of cannabis use, and the few that did had significant limitations, study author Daniel McCartney said in a press release. Overall, it appears that there is limited scientific evidence to support the assertion that cannabis use impairs next-day performance, though further research is still required, as per fucking always. There's always more research required. We need research, 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 even though millions of people have been smoking weed all the fucking time. Even though there's just a lot of basic anecdotal evidence, you know, you can just use your eyes and use your own personal experience to assess these things and know quite easily that this is exactly the truth. Um, But Policymakers should bear in mind that the implementation of very conservative workplace regulations can have serious consequences such as termination of employment with a positive drug test. The study states they can also impact the quality of life of individuals who are required to abstain from medicinal cannabis use to treat conditions such as insomnia or chronic pain for fear of positive workplace or roadside drug test. Um, the head of the American Trucking Association discussed this problem. There's... Other people who have discussed this, I've talked about this. When you look at, again, the amount of truckers in Canada and the US who can't get back to work because of a positive cannabis test, it's fucking insane. And then when you look at other industries, those numbers start getting astronomical. And you have to look at, again, things like the fact that in a lot of areas where there is medical cannabis and that's what's being promoted instead of recreational, what are these people to do? Uh, again, this 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 can stay in your system for up to 90 days from a single joint, depending on your metabolism and your weight. I've talked about this a lot. It's a huge issue when you're looking at cannabis testing, is it just isn't comparable to other drugs. Again, you can get opioids out of your system quite easily with a detox kit you can buy for $40. You can get, you know, crystal meth. You can get cocaine, um, You can get much more dangerous drugs that actually do have (laughs) dramatic impairment effects over a longer term. And you can quickly get them out of your system with a flush kit that, again, is going to cost you maybe at the tops $80. Um, There's lots of ways to work around these drug tests except with cannabis. And so cannabis is probably the most honest drug that's out there in that it does stay in your system. And I would say you could probably start putting maybe limits of like how high you can test I think that would be a smart policy is instead of looking at you've tested positive, look at the actual percentage number of how much is actually in your blood, saying you can't go above a certain legal threshold, I think would be a good idea. But instead, it's just positive or negative This is the basic result right now. Um, and again, most people are, are going to fail these if they've had cannabis within the last month or so. And again, when you're looking at how many industries are affected, it's a lot of the industries that are having labor shortages right now. And a lot of those workers are people who take cannabis to deal with the pains and sort of the ailments that come from working in that industry. When you're working as a trucker, back problems, leg problems, neck problems, these are common things that happen. Um, A common medication that we can prescribe now is cannabis for that. So it's kind of a confusing issue where you're saying, well, basically don't take the medicine that helps you perform this job better, um, because if you do that, we're going to fire you from this job. doesn't really make sense. And again, a person could be doing meth literally an hour before they were at work, take one of these detox kits, be fine, and go out into the world. So I think that's this type of stuff. And again, it just comes down to regulators at the end of the day not actually having a boots on the ground understanding of how these industries work. This would be a, uh, a great Sort of situation for a lot of those undercover bosses to sort of come in there and actually start working with some of these people and see what their lives are like and see what their drug consumption habits actually are and to see how it affects them. I would like to see more documentation on that. I don't think we require research or data. I think it requires a real understanding um, of what's actually going on in a lot of these workplaces. Again, as someone who sold detox kits and uh, urine kits, It was fucking crazy to me to see how many people were doing this from how many industries and how regularly. And I think that that's something the average owners even of these companies and people who are attached to the American Trucking Association and the Canadian truckers. They're not aware of. And again, they're regulating the the wrong things that don't really actually impact the industry as a whole. And they're penalizing people for actually doing healthier options for themselves, which is using cannabis instead of, again, opiates or other even painkiller drugs, which can have severe side effects and can severely impair their ability to perform their jobs. Lastly today, looking at raw The company, well known for their rolling papers, who has found itself in hot water after a federal court ordered HBI International, who is the maker of raw organic hemp rolling papers, to stop selling and distributing certain products, after a jury found that the company engaged in unfair competition and violated the Illinois Uniform Deceptive Trade Practices Act. Now, Republic Brands claimed that HBI deceptively and unfairly marketed its raw organic hemp papers. And that conduct largely fell within nine topics of categories. Those include HBI marketing its papers as having been made in Alcoy, Spain, referring to Alcoy as the birthplace of rolling papers. HBI affixed an Alcoy stamp to some of its products. Evidence of the trial found, however, that HBI makes no rolling papers in Alcoy, Spain whatsoever. Um, And there's been a few other claims that were in here, so... According to the order, by March 2nd, HBI must stop promoting, selling, distributing, shipping, or delivering all raw organic products sold in packaging, displaying the nine statements, including the Alcoy stamp. And by May 31st, it must stop selling the products under its other brands sold in packaging, including an Alcoy stamp. Now, this also follows other reporting in which blunt and joint smokers around the world... Um, may want to consider which papers they get as new research showed a significant amount of papers and blunt wraps that were tainted with heavy metals and pesticides. Now, nearly one in 10 rolling papers failed California's stringent standards for legal cannabis product purity. Leading California lab SC Labs spent two months this summer testing 118 rolling papers, cones, wraps, and cellulose rolling papers purchased from Amazon and several smoking shops across Sound Cruz. Um, and again, they found that nearly one in 10 failed California's uh, product purity tests, so contained heavy metals, pesticides, etc. And this is something that I think a lot of more established weed consumers are aware of, which is that you know, they're very specific with the papers they buy. I, again, saw this firsthand when I was selling rolling papers, um, and that people are very specific which with brands they want to go with because a lot of them are aware of a lot of the sort of chemical leaching that goes in your product while you're smoking it. And people just want to smoke their weed. Um, A lot of the flavored blunt papers have a lot of issues with them. The flavored uh, just regular papers have a lot of issues with them. And now we're finding out that just basically the entire market isn't super well regulated and super uh, organized when it comes to actually testing their quality of their products and making sure that they don't contain any of these heavy metals or pesticides. So it's definitely another aspect of the industry that people should consider is What papers are you using when you're smoking this? I think that this is something that will probably affect the pre-rolls industry long term. Because eventually, um, you know, I don't know if it'll happen right away in Canada, but I'm sure in California now it's going to be something that they are looking at for the pre-rolls market. And I do think that overall, as this discussion gets more attention and more media awareness, Raw has kind of been in the news lately because of these sort of combining issues of having the lawsuit as well as... having a discussion around failing heavy metals tests and pesticides tests, I do think that people are going to start looking at the papers industry under a bit more of a microscope and probably noticing that there's a lot of issues within that industry because it's kind of been in this weird gray area where it's not technically selling any cannabis products, but it is attached to the industry. And so obviously there aren't the same regulations and standards that surround actual cannabis products surrounding the papers, but I do think that that's going to be something that starts influencing the industry overall because companies are going to have to start looking at which paper products do they want to use for their pre-roll products because you don't want to have your product taken off of a shelf because the papers that they were placed in are failing tests. If your cannabis tested properly and you sold good product, the last thing you want is to have your end product contaminated by chemical leaching from the papers, heavy metals, pesticides, etc., Um, So definitely something to look at is how the papers industry is going to evolve, um, how much media attention this is going to get, and how it does affect the overall industry. Because pre-rolls still take up a huge sales percentage of the market. No matter where you're looking at, they're still one of the biggest areas um, for cannabis easy sales. And again, if people start becoming more aware of the fact that Certain paper products are going to be worse or, um, you know, have some of these issues other than the other ones. I think people will start preferring certain paper products. You'll start to see customers asking um, when they purchase pre rolls, like, What was this rolled in? And I do think that that's going to be something that companies are going to have to start paying attention to potentially. Maybe some of these companies start making their own paper brands with some of their leftover hemp product. That would be a potential option, which I would think would be industry Uh, interesting when it comes to overall just hemp as a non sort of cannabis product. When you're looking at hemp paper, when you're looking at hemp textiles, again, this is still the side of the industry that I think a lot of us were hoping would explode and become much more influential in just overall Business um, is still barely anywhere. We still barely see any of these actual products and almost none of the cannabis companies that are out there selling cannabis use any of their sort of leftover cannabis byproduct to make textiles, to make paper, to make anything. Most of it just goes to landfills or it goes to, um, let's say, probably the most, you know, environmental version is a lot of it goes to be uh, food for for livestock in some areas, um, but in general, like turned into a mulch. In general, we still really haven't seen, like I said, an actual hemp textile or hemp paper market explode in North America and potentially having these types of issues where you're going to notice that these companies who um, not only do they have issues with the quality of their products, but they also have issues with supply chains. And we saw that firsthand with uh, the pandemic and <clears throat> that the vast majority of papers and sort of accessory products for the cannabis industry are made overseas. So there could be a lot of benefits to having North American brands actually making their own hemp papers. And that could be part of their branding policy is saying, you know, our pre-rolls, we make ourselves and that we actually make the paper. We know that the paper is of the highest quality. It's going to give you the best joint experience. And again, we haven't really seen that so far, but this could be an opportunity for lots of companies to start looking into this and eventually turn things around where we're not reliant on overseas paper products, which again, aren't even going to meet the standards required in a lot of these markets. That's all for today's podcast. Enjoy the rest of your day. That's all for today's podcast. Podcast is now a certified word trademark on the blockchain through Cognate Incorporated CM certification. Investorideas.com podcasts are also available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and TuneIn. If you'd like to be a guest or sponsor this podcast, please contact InvestorIdeas.com. Investor Ideas reminds all listeners to read our disclaimers and disclosures on the investorideas.com website, and this podcast is not an endorsement to buy products or services or securities. Investors are reminded that all investments involve risk and possible loss of investment. Investor Ideas does not condone the use of cannabis except where permissible by law. Our site does not possess, distribute, or sell cannabis products.